Hello and welcome to Jujitsu Red to Blue, crushing MAGA under the weight of its own arguments. I'm Tish Durkin, and what I want to smack down today, and next week, because this is a big topic, isn't so much a MAGA argument as it is a MAGA-enabling mentality. And it matters precisely because it is a mentality held by many people who do not consider themselves to be MAGA at all. This is the notion that has been circulating so widely and so persistently in America these past few years that people have come to take it for granted, like the sound of silverware clinking in a restaurant or the smell of popcorn in a movie theater. This is the notion that in terms of their policy positions, Republicans may have gone far right these past few years, but Democrats have gone just as far left, so a nice normal American has no choice except to pray for some third-party night in shining moderation. Meanwhile, we'll all have to go eeny, meeny, miny, mo and hope to land on the lesser of two lunacies. To my knowledge, I have no friends or family who would consider themselves MAGA diehards, but just in the course of normal life, I am given some variation of this theme at least once a week. Both sides have gone nuts. It's become a political truism, but it is simply not true. Now, I know that in our current political climate, it almost never matters what is true. Given that every opinion that isn't predetermined by tribe is determined by personality or emotion, I would probably have better luck trying to heat my house by rubbing a bunch of sticks together than trying to convince anyone to reconsider their view of each party's radicalization by looking at the evidence that each party has radicalized or not. But as someone who grew up with a lot of pretend friends, I'm just going to proceed with this as if there's somebody out there who might be listening. So, if you go down the list, issue after issue, policy after policy, you will see very clearly that on almost every one, Democrats, by and large, are more or less where they have been for a very long time. It's Republicans who have changed their tune, or at least the way they sing it in public. And that, of course, is their right. Many Republican base voters are thrilled that their party has ditched its old limited government, business-focused, free market, free trade, NATO-supporting posture, and that it's all but rid itself of those in its ranks who, once upon a time, did champion things like voting rights, reproductive rights, and immigration reform. My point here is simply... Democrats have not done anything like the same thing with regard to their old pro-union, pro-safety net, pro-rainbow coalition, pro-choice posture. And where Democrats have changed, it has almost always been a matter of degree, not kind, while Republicans have become a whole new enchilada. For these two episodes, I'm not going to get too much into whether, by virtue of their long-held policy positions, Democrats are good or bad, right or wrong. I'm going to laser in on the question of whether Democrats are substantively much different on the big issues than they were 20, 50, 60 years ago. Whether it makes sense for people to have this feeling that Democrats were okay up until 2010 or 2015, but not anymore. In honor of King Charles's recent coronation, let's start with the crown jewel of Democratic policymaking, health care. The first Democratic president to advocate for universal taxpayer-funded health care in the United States was Harry Truman, who did so in 1945 and again in 1949. In the 1950s and early 60s, Democrats supported the creation of what in 1965 became Medicaid and Medicare, 
programs if they continue to hold sacrosanct. Now, you may think that government-guaranteed and at least partially subsidized access to health care for all Americans is a good idea or a bad idea. But it's not a new idea, and neither is strong Democratic support for it. On the related issue of child care, let's consider the Comprehensive Child Development Act of 1971. Formulated both in recognition that more American mothers were working outside the home and in a desire to enable single mothers on welfare to do so, this law provided, among other things, universal child care to American children three and four years old, funded by a combination of federal money and fees paid on a sliding scale by parents according to their level of income. After passing in Congress, the bill was then vetoed by President Nixon at the behest of his party's right wing. Now, there's nothing new about the Republican right mobilizing against a sweeping piece of social legislation, nor about its rationale for mobilizing against this one. In fact, opponents' expressions of alarm about the responsibility for child-rearing being torn from the American family and handed over to the collectivist state sound just like the alarm Republicans are sounding now in the name of parental rights in public education. But if we are thinking about how each party has moved over time, What's remarkable is who it was in Congress that Nixon stopped in their tracks with his veto. It wasn't a great band of left liberal Democrats. Yes, the legislation was introduced by Democrats, John Bradamus in the House and Walter Mondale in the Senate, but it had major support from major Republicans, such as Senators Jacob Javits of New York and Richard Schweiker of Pennsylvania. It passed both houses of Congress with comfortable bipartisan majorities. Fifty years later, President Biden incorporated a less ambitious, not universal, child care plan into his Build Back Better package, and Republicans almost universally rejected it. Senators Richard Burr and Tim Scott did come up with a child care proposal that shared many of the Democrats' stated goals, but not with any new funding. So here again, on federally subsidized child care, Democrats are for it, albeit not as expansively as they were 50 years ago. Republicans are against it, to a much greater degree than they were 50 years ago. Now let's get out of the legislative weeds and think about the party's respective philosophical approaches to the economy. Right or wrong, Democrats have always believed, and as of the New Deal of the 1930s have taken as a near-religious article of faith, that the government has a significant role to play in managing the economy and mitigating the effects of the market, albeit while fighting plenty amongst themselves about what exactly that role is and what those mitigations should be. Republicans have always believed, or at least said they believed, that government should, to the maximum degree possible, stay out of the economy. Their line used to be, Let private businesses and markets do their thing, and everyone will do a whole lot better than when the government intervenes and gums up all the works. They've lost that idea. And not just in the now familiar sense of begging for earmarks and tax breaks and bailouts when it's their favorites who need them. It's gotten much more brazen than that. When America, along with the rest of the world, got hit with a massive COVID recovery-related spike in inflation, You couldn't turn on the television or scroll through Twitter without some supposed conservative blasting the president of the United States for not doing enough personally to control prices. 
And they weren't simply making the argument that the high rate of spending under the big bills that Biden had pushed through Congress was contributing to inflation, which is a fair and traditionally Republican point. It was eggs or five bucks a dozen. I can't gas up my car. Thanks a lot, Joe. I'm not sure what they wanted Biden to do about the avian bird flu and OPEC maneuvers that were actually at play in these difficulties, but it definitely wasn't anything that a free market conservative could possibly feel good about. In fairness, Democrats have done a total about-face when it comes to civil rights, particularly as regards racial justice. But they did this in 1965. Actually, as Professor Kevin Cruz of Princeton University points out in his recent essay, one of a collection in a really interesting book he co-edited called Myth America, the Republican-Democrat switcheroo when it came to racial justice wasn't so much a switcheroo as a process that started during the New Deal. The process accelerated when give him hell Harry Truman did something that Southern white Democrats indeed viewed as hell, integrating the armed forces. But it was in the mid-60s that the transition became complete. In order to pass the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, Lyndon Johnson famously and knowingly forfeited the white South to the Republicans. But since then, through the Voting Rights Act reauthorizations of 1970, 1975, 1982, 1992, and 2006, Democrats remained consistent in the belief that the right to vote is sacred, it is to be safeguarded at the federal level from any attempts by states to abridge it, and moreover, that being such an important right, it should be reasonably easy and convenient for every citizen to exercise. And by the way, for a very long time, there were some very powerful Republicans who felt the same way. In 2006, it was a Republican chair of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Sensenbrenner of Wisconsin, who accelerated the timeline for reauthorization ahead of the act's expiration date by way of reassuring African Americans that, contrary to some rumors going around, the GOP had no intention of rejecting the legislation or watering it down. In that year, it is true, a vocal minority of right-wing House Republicans did try to water it down, and that minority voted against reauthorization. But most of their Republican colleagues viewed these efforts as an embarrassment, which they easily quelled. That 2006 reauthorization was also approved by every Republican in the Senate, where it passed 98 to nothing. Then, in 2010, came the rise of the Tea Party. And in 2013, the Supreme Court decision in Shelby County v. Holder to strike down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which required states with histories of racially motivated voter suppression to submit any changes to their voting laws to the Department of Justice for so-called pre-clearance. Pretty much the split second the court concluded that Section 5 was no longer necessary because voter suppression was no longer a problem, states immediately set about producing measures that illustrated how much of a problem voter suppression still was. Hence, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which sought to restore in 2021 what congressional officials in both parties had broadly favored from about 1970 through 2006. At that point, 17 of the exact same Republicans who had voted to reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, preclearance provisions and all, were still in the Senate, and only one of them, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, 
voted to do so again. Now ask yourself, if you were a senator in 2021, and you had in previous decades seen fit to support federal protections for voting rights in places with histories of racist suppression, and you had just lived through the presidency of Donald Trump, which served up Charlottesville and ended on the note of January 6th, would you be of the opinion that white supremacist voter intimidation was a bigger and more dangerous force in American politics than it had been back in 2006? Or would you be of the opinion that it was a smaller, and less dangerous force. 16 out of 17 Republican senators went with smaller and less dangerous. I find that astounding. But that's beside my point. My point is that here again, on the issue of voting rights, Democrats have basically stayed the same. Republicans have taken a giant leap rightward and backward. That's it for part one. Next week, abortion, immigration, climate change, and the whole queue of the LGBT. Thanks for listening. Tune in to more of Jiu-Jitsu Red to Blue. New episodes drop every Thursday morning. Mm-hmm.